0: This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. And so now we come to
1: this city called Pergamum. And Pergamum is gonna teach us so much because first of all, when you talk about Pergamum, you're talking about the Washington DC of Asia Minor. So this is the capital. This is where policy is determined. And the provincial governor in Pergamum had what was known as the right of the sword. He determined who lived and who died. Today,
0: today, 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 with Jeff Vines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Welcome. This is Today with Jeff Fiennes, and in this episode, Pastor Jeff is in a series called Heart Check. This is particularly a good time to have a little heart check and see where you are with God. To help explain, he's going to be starting in Revelation chapter 2 using these letters to illustrate the heart we should have. Let's get into it, and Pastor Jeff can explain more.
1: Turn over to Revelation chapter 2, and we're in a series where we're saying this is a good time to have a little bit of a heart check, to find out where you are in your relationship with God. And the reason we're using these uh, letters written to the seven churches, you know, you could do all kinds of different series with Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, but we're not doing an end time series. We're not talking about the seven letters in relationship to the timing of what's going to happen when. We're talking about Christ writing letters to his churches to illustrate the heart you and I should have because one day we're gonna stand before God. And there's this dichotomy in Revelation that tells us on the one hand that we're gonna be judged by the deeds that we do. And on the other hand, it says we're gonna be judged what's in our heart. And we don't have time to go through all of that now except to say that there's this assumption that if your heart has been changed, there's gonna be some outward deed. You know, you're not gonna be perfect, but there's gonna be some things that you're gonna do, the ways you're gonna live. And so now we come to this city called Pergamum. And Pergamum is going to teach us so much because first of all, and that's in, that's in chapter two, starting with verse 12. First of all, when you talk about Pergamum, you're talking about the Washington DC of Asia Minor. So this is the capital. This is where policy is determined. And the provincial governor in Pergamum had what was known as the right of the sword. He determined who lived and who died. And then if you were a prisoner, especially a Christ follower, and you did not denounce your faith in Christ. It was believed that he had the power to determine whether you lived or died. Now you can understand that's why Jesus starts his letter to the Pergamum or the Pergamites with verse one. He says to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, these are the words of him who has sharp double-edged swords. So right out of the gate, he says, no, I make policy. I have the word and the objective authority. I determine who lives and who dies. I, not the governor, possesses the ultimate power over life and death. And those words would have been very encouraging to people who wondered if they were going to live or die because of their faith in Christ. Pergamum, now stay with me. If you'll just go with me. I know some of you got to get lost in the history. Others of you love it, but stay with me. Because then it makes so much more sense. Because Pergamum, not only was like the Washington, D.C. It was, again, like Ephesus, spectacular in its architecture. And like Ephesus, they had these numerous, beautiful, extravagant temples dedicated to the gods. In Pergamum, and the only way we're going to understand the letter is to know there were five gods that dominated the worship culture. Quickly, first you had Dionysus on the Acropolis, prominently situated was the temple of Dionysus, the supposed son of Zeus and a human mother who supposedly offers his followers life after death and meaningful life on earth through the indulgence, listen now, raw meat and wine. So according to the teaching of Dionysus, this cult, followers who drank wine in excess and gorged themselves on meat experience God. Man, these are convenient doctrines, aren't they? So, So where the followers of Artemis in Ephesus met God through sex, the followers of Dionysus met God through intoxication and inebriation. And so the worshipers would gather around the altar. They would gorge themselves on raw meat. They would drink wine until they became intoxicated. In fact, it was so immoral. Think about this. Dionysus' worship was so wild because you'd have women get drunk and they would sing and dance and fornicate with whoever was willing it was so immoral that Rome declared it unlawful. Think about that. That's like Vegas declaring anything unlawful. And then to further antagonize the Christians, things that had been attributed to Jesus were now attributed to Dionysus. So it said they said Dionysus was born of a god, Zeus, and a human mother. Does that sound familiar? It was claimed that the priests of Dionysus would go down into the basement of the temple and turn the water into wine every night. And intimacy with Zeus occurred at an evening supper of wine and meat. In other words, a type of Lord's Supper. Okay, that's first. Second, you had Esclopius, who is kind of a snake god. So when you needed to be healed, you go to this god, Asclepius, And he would heal you of your infirmity. And as you enter the temple and pass by this, this snake god, this statue, you went in with the hope that you would be healed, and when you came out, you would give credit to the symbol. And here's the way it worked. It was kind of what, it was defective and yet fail-proof, because the priest in the temple would interview people who wanted to be healed as they were coming in. And if you had a serious disease, you didn't qualify, or if you were pregnant, you didn't qualify, because they didn't want any negative press on their god, now, if you did qualify, I don't know, maybe you had a leg that was shorter than the other. Some of you will get that. If you did qualify, what do you do? You go in, they would drug you, and then they would take you down to this room in the temple where you would fall into a, a, a drug-induced sleep, and they would tell you that during your sleep, Asclepius is going to appear to you, and he's going to tell you what your illness is, and he's also going to tell you the healing. Now, everything we know about this, it was totally psychosomatic because you would be convinced that whatever your disease was, if you took a mud bath or drank holy water, you were going to be well. So no matter what your illness was, eventually that's what you're going to do. And after you had the mud bath or drank the holy water, you went back out believing, even though there were no outward signs, believing that you were healed and patients then would get down on their knees before a statue of Asclepius, thank him for the healing, give him a gift. And then they would inscribe their name and the ailment from which they had been cured on a large white stone as a testimony to the god. Okay? Remember that. Third god, Demeter. Demeter is the goddess of grain. She was the god that many of the less fortunate, socioeconomically speaking, citizens of Rome and Pergamum followed because they, would be, they were taught, the reason you're poor is because you have transgressed against the gods, especially Zeus. And to be forgiven or rescued so that you can be fed again, so that you can become wealthy. Again, i you can imagine what's going through my mind the whole time I'm studying this, the parallels of today. I can't stop. Let's just keep going. You were told that if you wanted to become wealthy, you had to confess your sins, and then you could be forgiven if you offer a sacrifice on an altar and if you were baptized in the blood of a bull. So if you did these two things, you could be forgiven and you'd be wealthy again. So... Demeter was a kind of a slap in the face of the Christians, and it was meant to be. Fourth God. Man, we're making a good time. The Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. Pergamum was the first city to establish an emperor cult. So the people worshipped Caesar Augustus at the temple of Athena. They not only declared that Caesar was divine, but they claimed him as their savior and king as well. So they served, they worshipped, they prayed, they yielded to the lordship of Caesar Augustus. He was in their minds the God of gods. Now, there's one more, but as you think of Pergamum, remember Ephesus. Same story, different town. In order to buy, sell, trade, network, converse, socialize, take advantage of all the benefits available for the citizens of Rome, you were required to do a few things. They were non-negotiables. You had to burn incense before you came into the Agora to Caesar. You had to participate in all of the sacred ceremonies. You have to acknowledge the power of the Greek gods Attend temple worship and offer sacrifices to all the gods. And refusal to do that, at the very least, would cause you economic hardship. At the worst, your life. Now, unlike Ephesus, the Christians at Pergamum compromised. They latched on to the Nicolaitans. And they claimed that only the spirit mattered. It really didn't matter what you did in the flesh. Therefore, whatever you did in the flesh held no value and is written off as if the deed had not even been done. The New Testament likens this philosophy that we talked about under the Nicolaitans to the sin of Balaam in the Old Testament. If you know that story, Balaam, who had the power to bless, devised a plot to have the Moabite women who detested the God of Israel seduce Israelite men into intermarriage. And the result was a type of blasphemous union with fornication and idolatrous feasts, honoring the gods of Moab before the covenant they had made with God. And this created ultimately in the mind of God spiritual adultery, the worst kind, because those who made a covenant with God and said they will love God and pursue God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength now are pursuing foreign gods and having foreign relationships with people who were idol worshipers. And everything that they had previously sought from God, they were now seeking through foreign idols. Ephesus had called out and exposed and resisted the teachings of the likes of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but not Pergamums. So in Pergamum, they said, Go ahead, take the incense, pay homage, give glory to Dionysus, Asclepius, Demeter, and Caesar. In fact, bow to Caesar, it doesn't really matter. Dance to the foreign gods, join in the sexual orgies, gorge yourself on meat, drink the sacred wine. It's just the body, no real damage done. Now, get to the good stuff. There were still many who did not do that in Pergamum. I've always said that any given church, there are those who are real and genuine and authentic. You just never really know who they are. And that's why we treat everyone the same. We're not the judge. You give people the benefit of the doubt until they give you a reason not to. But there are many people who come to church, many people in the so-called church who are what we call nominal, right? They, they they've never really had their faith become real and personal. They just go through the religious motions, but they've never had an internal transformation of the heart. Only Jesus, though, is able to see into a person's heart and make that conclusion, right? But in every given setting, I think you have three types of people. You have the Frozens. Somewhere along their life, they became a Christ follower, but they're just stuck now. They're they're just stagnant. They're frozen. They're not making any forward movement, and it's because... There's no discipline, spiritual disciplines in their life. There's no prayer. There's no Bible study. There's no worship. So they go through the motions. It kind of appeases the God of the Bible in their minds, but there's really no heart transformational work happening. Second, you have the erosions. These are the ones that came to Christ. They were serious about Jesus, but then the cares of the world choked everything out and their faith is eroding day after day. And then you have the explosions. These are people who are fired up for Jesus. I mean, they they talk about Jesus. They talk about the kingdom of God. They love their neighbor as themselves. They love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They help people far from God, come near to God. Man, they are on fire. And there was a man in Pergamum by the name of Antipas. And when we visited Turkey last year, there's still the name Antipas that everybody knows in the town. I mean, this is 2,000 years later and people still know Antipas. He refused in the name of Jesus to bow down to Caesar to eat meat or drink the wine that had been sacrificed to the false gods or to participate in any kind of temple worship, but he did it quietly. He just refused to do it. Lived his life and refused. And so to make an example of him, the officials took Antipas to the altar of Zeus. Now, this is the fifth temple. The reason I saved it for last is it, it really governed over every other form of temple worship and, and false gods. Zeus, the temple of Zeus. In fact, in some ways... The temple of Caesar, the worship of Caesar, even was subsequent, secondary to Zeus, the god of gods. Antipas refused the worship, so they took him to the altar of Zeus, and at the altar of Zeus is what we call the seat. The seat is a big bronze bowl. They took Antipas. They heated the bowl so that your death would be slow and painful. You would slowly burn to death. You'd feel all the pain and the torture. To make an example out of him, to show everybody else what happens when you refuse to worship the emperor. And then to add insult to injury, the pagan priests took the smoldering bones of Antipas, carved them into bracelets, wore them around their necks, celebrating the sacrifice of Antipas to the gods. Now, that little bit of work helps us understand everything about the passage. Let me read it. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, you see, that little bit of work helped you understand all the verses in Revelation about Pergamum. But that last section where Esclopius was concerned, the healing was specialized to the individual, It was revealed during a drunken stupor, seldom if ever, achieving anything other than psychosomatic euphoria. But he's saying that Jesus' healing, as he writes the letter, Jesus' healing is also specific for each person, only he knows who you really are, only he really knows what you need. He knows how to repair any brokenness in your life and in your heart, and only he gives the bread that satisfies the hunger of the soul. Only he gives you a new name, a new identity, a new birth, so private and so deep that you and you alone know the full extent of what Christ has done in your life. Isn't that beautiful? That's the white stone on which you write his name. Now, all that's precursor. The seat of Satan, the throne of Satan, the altar of Satan. Why does Jesus write these words? Hold on now. Jesus gives the city of Pergamum an unusual designation. Look, if I say to you, if I if I'm in, if I say the city New York, what tourist place comes to your mind? Come on, Statue of Liberty. Now there are others, but for a lot of us, we think of New York. We think of New York Harbor, Statue of Liberty. What about San Francisco? Hey, you're cheating, aren't you? They're putting up the sign before. Come on, man. <laughs> Golden Gate Bridge. How about wait? Now, what about Los Angeles? Hollywood, Hollywood and the world's absolute worst airport <laughs> ever, right? But in Jesus' mind, if you were to say Pergamum, the altar of Zeus, the seed of Satan. Now take a deep breath, because I got to rapid fire this. In 1864, a German general by the name of Carl Hermann Frank came to Pergamum, was captivated by the altar of Zeus. He actually excavated the altar and brought it back to Berlin. Stone by stone, he transported it, the seat of Satan, into a museum that would be called the Pergamum Museum. In 1889, some 20 plus years later, the Temple of Zeus was completely restored in Berlin. And on the day of its completion, a baby is born on the border of Austria and Germany, whose name was Adolf, Adolf Hitler. Hitler is born on the same day as the completion of the Temple of Zeus, the seat of Satan, in Berlin. Nisan 19, which incidentally is also the date on the Hebrew calendar when Pharaoh attempted to finally exterminate and annihilate the people of God by pursuing them into the Red Sea. Now stay with me. So in 1889, thanks to German engineer Karl Hermann Frank, the Temple of Zeus, the seat of Satan is completely restored in Berlin. Now move ahead a few decades when the altar of Zeus catches the eye of a man by the name of Albert Speer, the chief architect for the Nazi party. Adolf Hitler, now in full power, had commissioned him to construct the parade grounds for the party rallies in Nuremberg. For inspiration, Speer created a colossal grandstand at the rally grounds known as the Zeppelin Tribune. And in this stadium, he creates the altar, recreates rather, the altar of Zeus in the middle of the grandstand, and he places Hitler's podium right over the place where the bowl of sacrifice would have been. Most of the rallies were held at night. Spears surrounded the grandstand with 150 searchlights, if you've ever seen any of those speeches, that old black and white film. So the columns of light would extend for miles and miles into the sky. It was a mystical effect that Hitler was trying to create. The effect was known as the cathedral of light because Hitler wanted to create a worship-type experience. He wanted a euphoria and a sense of the transcendent. He understood all too well that when you think of the gods, you're always looking up. So he wanted to create an environment where you're always looking up. And Hitler's entrance, by the way, would always appear as if it were coming down as a Messiah descending from the clouds to the faithful, waiting for him below. Historians tell us that when Hitler came among the people on those rare occasions, they had starry eyes and expressions of wonder as if they were in the presence of some god And all of that was intentional. Did you know that Hitler constantly, most of Hitler's language, I'm amazed. When you go back and listen to those speeches or you read the speeches, he borrowed so much language from Christianity, so much. Hail Hitler to thee, O Hitler became the popular song. Then Hitler would say things like this. You're our flesh of our flesh, blood of our blood. You must pick up your cross and follow me. You must deny yourself for the greater good of Germany. From his podium. Hitler would mesmerize the crowds with lights going up to the heavens in the midst of all this darkness because most of the rallies were held at night. And he would say things like this, and I quote, not every one of you sees me, and I do not see every one of you, but I feel you and you feel me, this idea of we are one in spirit. At which point thousands of Germans would swear on holy oath that goes like this, blazing flames hold us together into eternity. No one shall take this faith from those who are dedicated to Germany. The people saw Hitler as godlike, the savior of the German people. Do you realize? Listen. Oh, you catch my breath. Do you realize what Hitler did? He placed his podium in the exact location where human sacrifices took place on the bronze bowl. Did he do it? Did Spear do it? Or is Satan the orchestrator of all of this? Who is controlling him? And was this a foreshadowing of things to come? Because historically, Satan is the ultimate plagiarist. He has no creative ideas. He just takes what God does and mocks it and turns it on its head. That's why sometimes the the two are very difficult to distinguish because millions of Jews and Christians are going to be sacrificed on the altar of the Third Reich. Can I show you something, just one thing? You remember in Genesis 22? When God says, take Isaac to Abraham on the mountain of Moriah and sacrifice him, can I show you something? The verse goes like this. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him. There is a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So in the Hebrew, burnt offering, the Greek Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew of the Old Testament. And the Greek is a precise language, so it tries to convey or communicate the exact wording, the exact phrasing, the exact idea. The word in Greek, the Septuagint, that translates the idea of the Hebrew burnt offering, comes from two words. Holos, which means sacred and sacrifice, and kostos, which means burnt. So altar of sacrifice is the word holocaust. Satan's forte is counterfeiting. He takes God's promise to Abraham, turns it on its head, sets about to offer up the people of God as a sacrifice on the altar of Zeus, the seed of Satan, the leader of the Third Reich. You think about what he did as I contemplated this. You remember, I I thought about the SS men. They would keep the people condemned to die unaware of what awaited them, right? So they would load them into trains. They thought they were going to work camps. They would be sent to these camps. They They would undergo this disinfection. They would be showered or bathed. And then after the victims undressed, they were taken into a gas chamber, locked in, and killed with Zyklon B gas. These are the people of God we're talking about. After they were killed, they dragged the corpse out in the gas chambers, they cut off the woman's hair, removed all the the metal dental work and the jewelry, and then they burned the corpse in the crematorium furnaces. Satan just doesn't erect an altar. He is relentlessly trying to replace the altar of God with the order of a false God who is empowered by Satan himself, who will mock the work of God and the ways of God.
0: You've been listening to Today with Jeff finds. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Do you think that a total and full dependence on God is a bad thing? No matter how much stuff you
1: have, your soul knows it's not gonna be here forever. So even if you try to kid yourself or block it out, your soul will begin to die because it knows. When you start putting your peace and hope in how much stuff you have and all the things you can do and the liberty and freedom that you have, just like that, it can all be taken away.
0: You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fiennes wherever you listen to podcasts.